Hey, you may be seated. Hey, it's good to be back with you this weekend. Uh, last weekend I was away with Amanda, but it was good to be able to do that. And thanks to Pastor Kyle and the elders for making that a real possibility. We're going to be in James 3, 1 through 4, 12 today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there, and we're just going to jump in. The whole point of this passage we're talking about today is teaching us how to have a consistent faith. Our faith should be consistent with the gospel. If the gospel is real for you, if you believe Christ lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die and rose again from the grave to give you life abundantly and eternally, people should look at you and go, he is, she is, they are followers of Jesus. We can see it with our eyes. Their faith is consistent with what they claim to believe. People don't always care if you share the same values as them. They just want you to be consistent. If you say one thing and do another, they'll jump all over that. A recent survey of young people who left the church found out that many young people left the church not necessarily because they had problems with Christianity, but because they had problems with Christians. Christians said one thing and did another. What we might call hypocrisy. It, that's why young people are leaving the church. So it's important for the sake of Christ and his gospel that we have a consistent faith. And the way we do that is that we Work to not be offensive or offendable, but be peaceable and humble. Don't be offensive or offendable. Be peaceable and humble. Let's look at that here with James. First, don't be offensive or offendable. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Someone with a consistent faith won't be offensive. In the Bible, teachers and preachers are to receive special honor. 1 Timothy 5, 17 says they're supposed to receive double honor, which means they should be adequately compensated by their churches. So they receive special honor, but they also receive special judgment. As we see here in verse 1. So there's a reality that I've learned as a pastor over the years that if you're a pastor, you represent your church. So when you say something offensive from the pulpit or in a pastoral conversation, all of a sudden, it wasn't Evan said those things, it's Liberty said that. Like, and the differences between like maybe you, if you're just a member of congregant, it's like, well, you say something offensive, it's like, well, that sticks with you. But when a pastor says something offensive, it actually goes over the whole church. Well, Liberty believes that. Liberty talks about it that way. Well, he said that from the pulpit, so therefore Liberty believes this. Liberty said something offensive. But because the reason that is the case is because a preacher's words, like my words, represent something greater than me. And a preacher speaks a lot, talk a lot, some of us more than others. So a preacher needs to be careful about he, how he uses his words, not only because he speaks on behalf of a church, but also because he speaks on behalf of God. So advice that I often give like aspiring pastors 
and James would probably agree with this, I usually say something like this. If you feel called to do anything else, do that instead. If you feel called to do anything besides be a pastor, do that instead. Why? Yes, double honor is nice. Stricter judgment, not as nice. So pick up again in verse 2. James says, for we all stumble in many ways. All right, so now he turns it to all of us. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will, the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. James says no one's able to tame the tongue. So we think back into the verse 1. He's basically saying, so preacher, you need to be careful about what you say because you're going to receive a greater judgment of greater strictness. But then he turns and he says, but all of us, not just preachers, represent, represent something or someone greater than ourselves. So we all should be careful how we speak. We should speak as representatives of Christ. And we, when we speak as representatives of Christ, we have to be careful because we speak as those representatives to each other. The way we talk to each other matters. We're representing Christ to each other and we're representing Christ to our world. So verse 9, James says, with it, he's talking about the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? That's no, just in case you're wondering. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Proverbs 18.21 says this about the tongue. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Young people, did you know that dad jokes actually help you become healthy adults? True story. It's one way to use your tongue if your dad is to tell dad jokes. A recent study found out that when fathers embarrass their children with unfunny jokes, it teaches them how to overcome awkwardness. All right. Dads, keep telling those dad jokes. That's one way to bring life into our world with the power of the tongue. And so the, the study continues by continually telling their children jokes that are so bad that they're embarrassing. Fathers may push their children's limits for how much embarrassment they can handle. They show their children that embarrassment isn't fatal. So kids, instead of rolling your eyes at your parents, at your dad's dad jokes, maybe actually start thanking him because he's helping you become a more healthy adult. And that's one way to bring, that's a fun way to bring life with our tongue. But 
What the, James is really getting at is how we bring death with our tongues. The Bible says that every creature is created in the image of God. So James says that should be on the forefront of our minds when we speak about and to people. This, is that actually how you think when you talk to someone? The person who's receiving my words is created in the image of God. So it might seem small or insignificant to blast someone or something on Facebook or to say something hurtful about or to a leader or spread lies and misinformation about an event or an idea. But an untamed tongue is like an uncontrolled fire, James says. And the fire grows and grows and will eventually burn down the whole world and you in the process. Death is in the power of the tongue. And because God loves his creation, he loves the people who are created in his image to burn down his creation and people with our words is not to partner with God, but with Satan. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you might say, well, isn't the gospel offensive? Right, Evan, you're telling me I shouldn't be offensive, but isn't the gospel offensive? And I would say, yes, it is, absolutely. But preaching the gospel or telling people about the gospel is a God and other serving offense. It's in obedience to God and it's in concern for someone's salvation. What James is calling out is self-serving offense. When it's, it's about me, it serves me. And so I offend other people because it makes me feel good. And what's ironic is that many Christians are slow to offer God-serving and other-serving offense of the gospel, but we're quick to, serve, we're quick to offer self-serving offense, aren't we? We're slow to do what God actually tells us to do. We're slow to be offensive in the way God asks us to be offensive, but the ways God asks us not to be offensive, we're very quick to do those things. So we need to check our motives before we speak. Do I intend to bring life or death with what I'm about to say? If you're God-serving and others-serving, you're bringing life. If you're self-serving, you're going to bring death. And it becomes like this sinful impulse that I have to say something. I got to get it out. I can't hold it back, right? In Mean Girls, they would refer to this as like, uh, refer to it as like word vomit. Like it's coming up. I can't hold it back. I got to let it out. It's the only way for me to feel good is to unleash my words on you and offend you and hurt you as long as I got it off my chest. Whew. Made me feel good to say it. Doesn't really matter how the damage it caused on this person. And some of you have been recipients of that and you feel that. Where somebody just unloaded on you. And they were self-serving in their offense. And you carry the scars to this day. A person with an inconsistent faith lets their tongue run wild and curse people Monday through Saturday. And then they try to show up to church on Sunday and then praise God and bless him. James is saying, nah. No, no way. That can't happen. Your faith's got to be consistent. So don't be self-servingly offensive. And then he also says, someone with consistent faith also won't be offendable. 
Look at verse 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Have you ever noticed that offensive people are also often the most easily offendable? You ever notice that? However, some of us might not be verbally offensive. Like, it's not like our move to just, like, unload on people. We don't just unleash, but we're easily offendable. And I love that James doesn't, like, let anybody off the hook. See, we're quick to get defensive when we receive negative feedback. Or we stew in anger when a brother or sister in the Lord gives us input or challenges us on our sin. Or we avoid people who make decisions that we wouldn't have made if we were in that circumstance, but because they made it and I wouldn't have made that decision, I'm not going to be around them. And James calls out people who are full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and these people are easily offendable. Because if you're bitter, bitter jealousy is the same, it might be the same word we call envy. It's the same word. One author calls it actually the spirit of self-devotion. I love that. Like to have bitter jealousy is to have this spirit of self-devotion. It's all about me. And then selfish ambition is like the word contentious or factious, right? Causing factions in the church. Paul actually in Philippians 1 talks about men who preach gospel for their own glory as people who have selfish ambition are contentious or factious. See, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition have the ability to tear the fabric of the church apart. And James 4, 1 through 3, says something like this. says, that's why you're fighting so much. If you're full of the spirit of self-devotion, you can't celebrate the good thing God is doing in someone else's life because he's not doing it for you. If you're full of the spirit of self-devotion, you can't compliment someone on your serving team because that takes attention away from you. If you're full of the spirit of self-devotion where it's all about you, you can't be excited for someone else's new house because it might be bigger and better and nicer than yours. Or parents, if you're full of the spirit of self-devotion, you can't be happy for someone when someone else's kids get accomplishment or, you know, or a compliment at school or wherever, without hearing it as a criticism of your own kid. Well, my kid did this, and that didn't even get recognized. With your spirit of self-devotion, that's, it's all about you. And when you're contentious, when you're full of selfish ambition, you always got to be in charge. You always got to be in control. You always got to have it your way. And then you'll do what James says. You'll quarrel He says, you'll murder with your words and you'll feed your passions. And what you'll do is you'll tear the people apart that Jesus was torn apart to bring to himself. You'll tear apart the people Jesus was torn apart for. 
And what we often see from the, is that what builds there is then a spirit of cynicism and criticism. The spirit of criticism, cynicism, it starts to grow. And that eventually comes out. And James says, it's satanic. And Satan will take the op- any opportunity you give him to destroy God's people. So verse 4 of chapter 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Years ago, back in the day, the NFL started penalizing what they called climbing the ladder. So basically what would happen is when the other team was attempting a field goal, the team playing defense would physically lift up their teammates, like maybe like in cheerleading or gymnastics, like lift up their teammates to try to block the field goal. Now imagine how ludicrous it would be if an offensive lineman helped the defensive lineman climb the ladder, right? He hikes the ball and they like lifts up the guy to block his own field goal. He'd be actively working to stop their team. And that's kind of the idea that James has here. He's basically saying like a spirit of criticism and cynicism grows within us. It comes out of us. And then we, we're actively helping Satan block anything God's doing. We're playing defense on the team we're supposed to be on. Satan will take any opportunity you give him to tear this church apart. He'll, get, he'll take any opportunity you give him to tear God's people apart all across the world. Any opportunity, he'll take it. And it's often through our words, it's often through this spirit of criticism and cynicism that Satan attacks. And James says, you've got to pick a team. You've got to pick Satan's team and the world's team, or you've got to pick God's team. It's got to be one. You can't have both. And I saw this spirit of cynicism and criticism this week when um, young people, you might know Mr. Beast. He's a famous YouTuber. His real name is Jimmy Donaldson, so it makes sense why he changed to Mr. Beast. It's a cooler name than Jimmy Donaldson. I joked around my son. I think I beat up that kid in middle school. But Mr. Beast is definitely a cooler name than Jimmy Donaldson. He's this extremely generous YouTuber. And he recently paid for cataract removal for 1,000 people who are blind or near blind, but could not afford the surgery. A thousand people, he donate money that they would be able to be able to see again. And actually, like most people who are legally blind, this kind of 10-minute surgery, if they were able to afford it, would be, would be able to help them see. And it was really cool, it was really generous, and many people saw it that way. But some claim Mr. Beast was upholding systemic ableism. And you're like, what's systemic ableism? I'm glad you asked, because I defined it in my notes. When it's, systemic ableism is when you see people with typical abilities as superior and discriminate against people who have disabilities. Ableism. They said, well, he's seeing people who have sight as superior to people who don't have sight by donating money for a surgery. And this critical and cynical spirit, do you feel how it's like destroying the world? It feels like what my mom used to say is like, that's why we can't have anything nice. Because anything, something good happens, like we can't be happy about it. Somebody has to toss a wet blanket on it. And that's just all around in our world, and we see it all the time. And it's not just with Mr. Beast and cataract surgeries. We see it all the time in politics, right? If the president leans left, it doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter. 
The right-leaning media will be critical about every policy he puts forward. Like, it legitimately could be the exact policy during the debates that the other guys said, but because he's a left-leaning president, your right-leaning family member will be like, yo, can you believe he did that? And let's not act like it doesn't happen when it's the other way. Like the uh, president on the right, it doesn't matter what he does. The left will critique it. It could be the policies could be the same. But because it came out of his mouth and not our mouth, therefore it's wrong. Or maybe you have a preferred theological tradition. So even if another theological tradition says something true or a church in another tradition is doing great things for the kingdom, you can't rejoice with those who rejoice because you're critical or cynical about anything they do because it's not yours. And I just want to say to all of us as, as we're all listening here, listen to me. A critical, cynical spirit ain't the Holy Spirit, y'all. That's not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit gives discernment. He gives us wisdom. He helps us be meek, James says. He helps us sow peace so we can receive a harvest of righteousness. Listen, a critical, cynical spirit, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's not. And it doesn't sow peace. What it does is it sows an us versus them mentality where my side is always right and their side is always wrong. And we give in to this mentality and we feel that we need to go on the offensive against them. And then we're like shocked when they attack us and offend us. And what happens, it goes back and forth for a really long time. You guys know this, you see this all, all the time. It goes back and forth, the attacks go back and forth, the offenses go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually you got to get tired of it. So us has to get a leg up on them so we've played dirty. We fight dirty. And let me just tell you, it's my challenge to you. If you listen to people on podcasts or you watch their cable news shows or you follow them on Twitter or you surround yourself with critical, cynical voices and people, their tongues are destroying you. And they'll sow the same spirit in you and it ain't the Holy Spirit. And by receiving it, you'll start to see the gospel is struggling to take root in your heart. And the world and you will burn with what James says. It will be set on fire by hell. But the gospel makes us peaceable and humble, not offensive and offendable. So James 5 says, 4, 4 5 and through 10 says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So I love that line. It's like the devil is a coward. You put up a little bit of resistance, he'll run. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. He's saying just repent and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. A consistent faith makes peace with others and is humble. 
Ephesians 2, 17 says, Jesus came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Philippians 2, 8 says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how are we supposed to live? As peaceable and humble people too. That's, how, that's the reason why in those same books, Ephesians 4 says that we're supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The person with consistent faith realizes what Jesus has done for them and then seeks to do that for others. So take a hard look at yourself. Would people see you as offensive? Would they say you're easily offendable? Are you critical? Are you cynical? Or is your life consistent with your saviors? Are you peaceable? Are you humble? Are you gentle? Are you open to reason? Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, that James talks about? Jesus wasn't self-serving, but he was God-serving. He, was, he had perfect obedience to the Father. He sought to bring God glory every step of the way. And he was others serving, healing the sick, caring for the poor, and dying the death that sinners like you and me deserve to die. And if Jesus wasn't self-serving, if Jesus was God and others serving, those of us who have consistent faith should try to do the same thing for others. See, the antidote to offensiveness is the peace of Christ rooted in our hearts and shown to others. We'll only offend if, our, if, we're, if the peace of Christ is rooted in our hearts, you and I will only offend if it serves God well. Or it serves that person well. Only if our tongues will bring life. Sharing the gospel or getting people who are in these destructive life patterns the help they need is, or calling out sin in a loving way by pulling somebody aside and reminding them what like what they're doing and how it's hurting them and how you care for them and how they've been created in the image of God and you don't want to see that for them? If the peace of Christ is rooted in your heart, that's how you'll approach it. And that's how you'll offend. And you'll refuse to be self-servingly offensive. And the antidote to being easily offendable is the humility of Christ rooted in our hearts. The peace of Christ and the humility of Christ. And when we receive offense... What will happen is when the humility of Christ is rooted in our hearts, we'll let offense roll off of us. So any, because any offenses that are thrown your way or my way are small potatoes compared to the offense Christ took on himself due to my sin. And if I'm humble, I'll go, you know what? Christ was offended for me. I don't need to be offended. And so when the world is cynical towards others, you can be full of mercy and good fruits. When it lives by us versus them, you can be impartial, seeing both sides are filled with sinners in need of grace. When your friends are cynical toward them, you can be sincere in your assessment of what they do. And so the passage that we were talking about today ends this way, with this challenge. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What James is attacking is the lie of self-importance. Listen, we're all important to God. God loves you. You're important to him. But you're not as important to someone else's success and well-being as you might tell yourself you are. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, which is why if you go to the back end of the hallway, it smells a little bit like bacon. You're welcome. But the author Richard Rohr offers five essential truths that every man must come to grips with in order to grow in his God-given masculinity and spirituality. And here are the, here are the five, and they're a gut punch, but it applies to men and to women. Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life is not about you. You're not in control, and you're going to die. And these truths, especially you are not that important, your life is not about you, or you're not in control, will help you see that God is the judge. And it will keep your self-serving nature in check. See, many of us tell ourselves the lie of how important we are. That if somebody just listened to me, I'd be able to save them. If someone just did what I told them to do, even if I have to unload on them and it's going to be offensive and it's going to hurt them and it's going to destroy them, I can save them. Or I'm so important that when anybody says something about me, oh, it's immediate offense. Oh my gosh, how dare they say something about me? And James is saying, God's the judge. You're not. So here's some tips for you, okay, as we conclude today. When you have the impulse to offend, my challenge to you is to start taking a mental note of when you want to say something offensive and ask why you wanted to say it. I started applying this yesterday. I'm just one day ahead of you guys. And I found out how often I wanted to make snarky comments about somebody on TV. And I could feel it coming. And I would go, whoa. I started to say, like, what does that reveal about my heart? That somebody has a weird haircut or they have a weird smile or they do something goofy on TV and I'm like, I'm going to say something snarky about it. And, like, my kids are there. Like, they're going to pick that up. What does that reveal about my heart? And I have to remind myself that the person I wanted to offend is created in the image of God and Jesus died for them. And so if you've had this impulse to, to offend and to be offensive, here's also my challenge. Sometimes you've got to talk to people. You gotta, there's negative things you're going to have to say because it's important for them for their growth. But my challenge to you also is try like a five-to-one rule. For every one negative thing you're going to say about a person, try to say five positive things about them. Like think about how that would change your marriage. Right? If you're like really frustrated with your spouse and you just said, hey, I'm going to actually make sure that when we weigh things up, the positive is going to outweigh the negative. And when you're feeling offendable, here's my challenge to you. Try not to project motives on the other person. Not everyone has sinister motives against you. Not everyone is out there to disrespect you. 
Assume the best of each other. Assume the best of others, especially those who love you. Assume the best of your spouse, not the worst of them when they, they say something that you might be offended by. And even if their motives aren't pure, remind yourself of how Jesus was offended for you. Jesus didn't defend himself. And you know what Jesus is doing in heaven in relation to the devil's accusations? He's defending you. So you're free from having to defend yourself. But sometimes you do need to talk to a person who offended you. So talk to the person the way you would want to be talked to. Treat them like somebody who is created in the image of God, just like you. Treat them as somebody that Jesus died for, just like you. So talk to them the way you would want to be talked to. So here's a couple of things. One, avoid absolutes. Try to remove things like, you always do this, or you never do that. Remove absolutes. You know how rare it is for somebody to always do something and to never do something? It's like impossible. So actually be more realistic. Remove absolutes. And try to use more I feel language rather than accusatory language. I feel like you're saying when I, I feel like when you're saying, when you question my decisions, I feel like you're saying you don't trust me. Not you don't trust me. You see a difference? I feel like you're saying you don't trust me. Versus what we normally do is like you don't trust me. Or actually better, add the absolute, you never trust me. It's, we always got to do what you have want to do. How's that working for you? And here's the other thing. Distance actions from reality. Parents, this is a really important one. Distance actions from identity, excuse me. I found this out recently when I told, <sighs> confession time, I told one of my kids that you're mean. And he, so now there's one of two of them, said, that was really hurtful, Dad. And I was like, dang. So I said, I'm sorry. What I meant to say is, you're being mean to your sister. Right? You're being something, not you are something. I've heard parents say, I'm disappointed in you. No. What you did disappointed me. We're not even disappointed. Try to use a different word. What you did hurt me. I, I expect more from you in this area. But try to distance actions from identity. And so I challenge you as we, we leave today, just have a consistent faith. Don't be offensive or easily offendable. And work by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be peaceable people and be humble people. Let's pray.